0: Have you ever um, looked at something or saw something in, in someone's home or, you know, in their shed or in their basement and thought, what's the point of that? What does that do? Why, why would you even have something like that? Why, why would you even own that? I don't get that. That doesn't make sense to me. Uh, for me, there's a few areas of life where that happens. One of them is art. Uh, art sometimes makes me wonder, wh- what? what's the point of that? For example, uh, one of the most famous artists of modern era is Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock uh, is known as being an action painter. And do you know what an action painter is? They literally take all of their body and use kinesthetics in order to paint. And the way that he painted was he would take normal house paint and get a giant canvas, something uh, the size of a wall, and he would take buckets of paint and he would just sort of dance and fling the paint at the wall and it would run down and then he'd grab another color and he'd throw that paint against the wall and it would become art and it would just kind of run and during the, no no real vision, just an Action painter and when I look at his art I go what's the point because I have sometimes been carrying paint and I've tripped and the can has gone all down the stairs of the church no less and there's just this now rainbow stairs and no one says gosh Brian that's wonderful art they say, "Brian, how are you going to get that out of the carpet?" I look at that and I go kind of, "What's the point of that?" Another thing I don't really get the point of is saving bent nails in a jar. <laughs> I know the I know the story, I know the era if someone who maybe went through the Great Depression, an immense time of scarcity that we just have no conception of in our uh, consumer-based society today. Uh, when, when things fell apart, they would save the nails in case they could reuse them, including the bent ones. As a matter of fact, uh, Krista has some friends uh, back in Canada uh, where uh, he and his wife bought her childhood home. And on this huge farmland sort of place, you know, out in the country, uh, they had a couple of, of sheds that would be almost like implement sheds where you'd keep a number of uh, big pieces of farm equipment, bigger than a garage, not as big as a house. And they were falling down because they've been up forever. This has been, you know, her, her parents' place. And so, anyways, they decided, you know what, we've got to clean this out. And they found jar after jar after jar of bent Nails that her dad was still saving. And she said, you know what? We got to get rid of these. And so she started to throw them out. Her dad, still alive, said, what are you doing? I can use those. And she said, it's been 60 years and you have not opened the lid on this mason jar yet to use one of these nails. I think we're safe to throw out the nails. But the greatest example to me The greatest example of what's the point of that are some of the high school classes that I had to take. Right? Right? You know what I'm talking about. Some of you, for the life that you went on to live, art class did not help you in any way. Music class did not help you in any way. Math class did not help you in any way. Nobody sits down and thinks, you know what? Let's get the family together around the kitchen table and have a rousing round of calculus. We don't do that. Now, of course, some people use those courses, and I understand why high schools give you these things because they're not closing the door on you, right? They want to give you the opportunity to explore and experience all that you could possibly do with your life. But there's some point later on in the future where you just go, you know what, you say in class, is this something I need to listen to? Is this going to be on the test? Wouldn't it be great if we could do that? Is this something I'm going to need in my life later on as a pastor or something? Now, having said that, I wish I had paid more attention to things like vacuum repair or photocopier repair or or things like that in seminary. They weren't courses that were offered, but boy, do I need them from time to time working in a church. There's just things in life where we look at them or things that we have to do where we just think, what is the point of that? I bet you have a story. And maybe at the, the BYOP after service today at the Bring Your Own Picnic, you can share your stories of, you know, I had to do this or I saw this and I really wondered, what's the point? But let's be honest. I, I, I know we're in church, so this is a little bit of a, a tricky subject. But let's, let's face it. There are some times that people including Christians, feel that way about church. They see something going on, they see something happening, and they think, what's the point of that? What's the point of that ministry? That doesn't seem to be having any impact. Why do we do that? I've had people tell me that. I don't, I don't think I need groups. I don't need People coming together to talk about journeying towards Jesus together. I don't need that kind of commitment. That's not for me. I've had people say, I don't need this Sunday school class because I come on Sunday morning. I don't need to be taught something. We vote whether something, you know, has a point in our lives by our attendance as a matter of fact, when I was a youth pastor, it was never more evident to me than when we taught a theology class to our middle school students. Our middle school group was designed so that uh, every week they'd meet, but one week we'd do this high-energy outreach, you know, we'd go play uh, tag, or we'd rent a gym, and we'd play basketball or floor hockey, and we'd have pizza, and there'd be music, and it would just be, it would just be wild and crazy as, as middle school uh, uh, youth groups always are and it would be so much fun everybody would invite their friends and then the next week following that we'd have a more uh, serious time in the scriptures we would do a bible study something that was relevant to them something they wanted to study and they were all really well attended except when we did our class on the statement of faith I can't tell you how many kids told me they weren't sure of the point of premillennialism and transubstantiation, and the trinity. What impact does that have in our lives? We taught this class, we went through this whole thing, and do you know what our best attendance was for our middle school high school group ever? Two. Two people came, and one person was disappointed because they thought it was an outreach night. They came on the wrong night. Maybe you felt like that about church. Sometimes you wonder what's the point. And if you have, you're not alone. Maybe you grew up in a church tradition that had a catechism class when you were a young teenager. Much like we taught the statement of faith to our middle school students. Maybe that was something that you had to do in order to... Stay connected to the church. That was part of their process. That was part of their discipling path. Or maybe you needed to learn the Apostles' Creed and what that meant. Some of them were very interesting, and some of them not so much. Well, I think the Bible actually teaches us that theology matters, but theology has to be good theology. Theology, as we know, is the study of God. It's knowledge of God. It's, what do we know about God? What is he like? What does he do? How can we know that? And yet, sometimes that's where we stop. We stop with the knowledge component of theology. And when we stop at just knowing theology, then we take the good out of theology. What does that mean? In order for it to be good theology, it can't just inform, it must transform. The point of good theology, the point of theology, if it's to be good, is that it must not only inform, it must transform. In other words, it should change us. And as a matter of fact, here's my premise to you this morning. That Jesus would say it must change you or else. If all you do is no theology and that there is no change from that theology. No transformation from that theology. No sanctification from that theology. Then we have a problem. And Jesus makes it very clear to us in a loving way. It may not seem like a loving way at first glance. But he makes it very clear to us. What change does good theology want to accomplish in our lives? We see that in Mark chapter 9 starting at the 42nd verse. If you've got a Bible with you, turn with me and then We're going to have them on the screen uh, in a moment. And the interesting thing about this story is that In the gospel of Mark, Jesus is talking to us about how to be great Christians. That great Christians is not about having power. It's about how we use the influence we have to be a servant of all. That we will serve the overlooked and the unqualified. Right? And Jesus continues that thought in Mark 9, 42 to 50, when he says, here's how to be great. If anyone causes one of these little ones who are the little ones? those who believe in me if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble it would be better for them if a large millstone a large rock were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea if your hand causes you to stumble cut it off it is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. And salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt amongst, among yourselves and be at peace with each other. I don't know about you, but I hang out with a lot of Christians. Um, I hang out with a lot of Christians here. I hang out with a lot of Christians in my associations, talking to other churches, talking to other church leaders. I kind of gravitate to circles of Christians. And one of the things I don't see a lot of today is I don't hear a lot of stories about Christians who have drowned. Because millstones were tied around their neck and they were thrown into the sea because they caused someone else to sin. Maybe... You have, but in my circle, I have, and I don't hear about a lot of people who have cut off their hand, plucked out their eye, or cut off their foot in order to deal with sin in their lives. We just don't see a lot of one eyed, one handed, crippled Christians, do we? But look at what Jesus is saying. I don't think Jesus is telling us that self mutilation is something that we need to practice as a spiritual discipline. I don't think that's what he's saying, but I think what he's saying is, what is the level of your comfort with the things that cause you to sin? What is the level of comfort that you have with the things that tempt you to sin? And Jesus is telling us that, you know, you want to know good theology. You want to know what looks like a transformed life. Is that it must transform you from a sinner to a saint. And your part is to do absolutely whatever it takes to cut sin out of your life. To cut temptation out of your life. Because... Because of the consequences if you don't. The consequences of playing fast and loose with our personal sin. Is a price that we don't want to pay. And what Jesus is talking about here. Is cold turkey Christianity. If it causes you to sin. Cut it out of your life. Completely. Do whatever you have to do. Now, Jesus isn't talking about actual self-mutilation, but what he is talking about is if that thing leads you to a place where you sin, get rid of that thing. For example, if there's some websites that tempt you, that you just can't resist clicking on, and they cause you to sin, get rid of your computer. That's what he's saying. The television show, Tempts you, get rid of it. If your phone causes you to sin in anger, get rid of your phone, get rid of your social media account. If a relationship, if a group of friends is consistently tempting you to do things that defy the commands of God, cut yourself off from those friends and I think what Jesus is describing here is that sin is an appetite that you must starve to death in your life and the things that tempt us are just those little things those little bits that you and I like to take and do you know what there is lots of freedom for the Christian There are very few rules for the Christian. There are commands to love God and love others, and the rest is up for grabs. But there are individual things that tempt you, that take you down a path, a slippery slope, that you alone are responsible to say, that's taking me to a place where I'm going to disobey God, therefore I cannot go to that place. I've shared this example before. If you struggle with overeating, don't go to the buffet. Is it wrong to go to the buffet? No. I go to buffets all the time. And I've not invalidated my Christianity. But for some, it does. So cut it out of your life. If you can never have a drink without getting absolutely plastered, then cut it out of your life. If there's that guy or... That girl in your life, they don't really follow Jesus, but, but you know, they just make me feel good. And, you know, I, I love to be with them. And yeah, we've probably gone too far a couple of times. Jesus says, cut it out. If you can't control yourself, get out of the environment. Stop feeding the sin. And he says it for two reasons. The first reason is that it's better for you in the long run. Where do you want to end up? Don't toy around with sin. And secondly, once you become numb to your own sin, what will awaken you to the horror of where you end up? Just like scar tissue loses feeling. If your heart gets scarred, if your soul gets scarred, how will it develop that allergic reaction to sin. You see, salt is a preservative. It's a preservative in the old world. And when Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, how do you make it salty again? There's a very clear warning that our lives are spoiled when we play fast and loose with our Sin. But that actually makes me ask a question. I don't know about you. How do you become numb to sin? How does a Christian become numb to sin? Well, Jesus actually shows us in the next uh, story. In Mark 10, verse 1, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus, smart teacher, answers question with a question. Says, what did Moses command you? And who's Moses? One of the greatest spiritual leaders Israel has ever had. Right? The giver of the law. What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, you know, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus says... It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. in the house again the disciples asked jesus about this he answered anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her and if she divorces her husband and marries another man she commits adultery The test that the Pharisees have for Jesus makes us very uncomfortable. And Jesus is clear, Scripture is clear. Divorce is sin. I know people, I have family. who struggle with the harsh reality of God's holy command about marriage. So what is Moses doing? What is Moses up to? The the one of the greatest leaders that Israel would ever have giving people a way to end their marriage. What is he doing? In Moses' day, divorce was happening anyways. And if a divorce happened, 99% of the time, it was the fault of the woman. It didn't matter whether that was true or not. It was just, she did not serve her husband well or did not look after her husband well. And society looked at her as damaged goods. Her value For the rest of her life was damaged. No other men would want her because she didn't keep her man happy. She didn't serve him well. The family didn't want her back. How dare you bring such slander on our home? She had nothing. She had nowhere to work. She had no future. No options. A man could make up a story. Yeah, she burned the toast too much. And she wasn't going to have a life for the rest of her life. The certificate of divorce was no fault insurance. And it essentially said, I don't have to give a reason. You don't have to give a reason. We're just ending it. And that woman could take that certificate of divorce and be sent away. And no one would ever wonder what happened in the marriage. It was just a mutual ending. It ended. And the woman could go on and have a life. She could remarry. She could be welcomed back into her family. She could seek employment because her moral character was not a question. What was worse in the eyes of society? Here's the point. Jesus and Mark in particular this is so good he uses this example of how we like to grab certain sins and elevate them to the point of if you do that there's a point of no return for you without realizing the long term harm that judgment can bring you see God's grace for the effects of sin are immeasurable the message of the gospel, and hear me well, the message of the gospel for you and I today is that no matter what we have done in our lives or no matter what has happened to us in our lives, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough to forgive you from your sin and to provide you with eternal life, a future and a hope and an abundant life now. That's the grace of that we have. But he warns us. And he says, "Grace should never be an excuse to sin." And what he's saying is is that God's provision should never be considered as permission. God's provision should never be considered permission. It's grace because we don't deserve it. We're wrong. We're flawed. We're broken. This is um, something that I've heard come up in some of my leadership discussions with other pastors, especially when we recently started talking about the issue of bathroom use and gender dysphoria. Someone comes in who's identifying as a, sex that's not their biological sex when they were born, and they want to use the bathrooms at your church, what do you do? And there's all sorts of talk about safety of the flock and so on. But then one pastor in the room said, but what if they just actually have to go to the bathroom? Are you going to tell them no? What do you do? Andy Stanley called this the ideal versus the real. The ideal is perfect holiness. But the real is we are all very, very broken. And as Christians, the certificate of divorce for the people of God in Jesus' day was a lifeline. Because Moses recognized God's grace and said that the worst thing that someone can do when they're drowning is yell at them, just get out of the water. No, you throw them a lifeline. It would be better if they never got into the deep water in the first place. But it happens. So there's this tension of grace and holiness of our need for grace, but our desire to be holy, to be like Christ. And what Jesus is saying is if you want to be a great Christian, stop pretending that a little black mold is okay in your life. You see black mold in your home, what are you doing? All the kids out. All the pets out. All the perishable food out. And you're bringing in a company to treat that and kill it in its tracks. And you don't care how much it costs because of what could happen if you let that mold grow. Jesus says as Christians, grace is immeasurable and we are so thankful for it. But let's not live in a way That marginalizes why we even needed grace in the first place. Do whatever it takes to cut sin out of our lives. Sin is sin. So how do we do that? How do we begin to change because of this good theology? One more story. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, "'Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child,' will never enter it. Let me read that again. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. What an amazing picture of our Savior. Doing what no one else did in those days. Welcoming the overlooked and the unqualified. See, children didn't have a lot of value until they could contribute to the family. So little children like this are a lot like a a nursery would be today. with full of infants. Where everything that they receive is from someone else. They are fully dependent on their parents. You know, it's interesting as Christians, we are always the children of God. We never, we never grow up out of that. So why do some Christians, why do we, maybe why do you, Try to live life as an independent. Jesus is speaking here of what I like to refer to as a desperate dependency. What good theology does is it creates a desperate dependency on God to overcome sin. It is our personal focus. Boy, we spend a lot of time saying this is what's wrong with the world out there, and we spend hardly any little time Talking about what's wrong with me in here. That's the real work of good theology. Good theology changes us, and then through us, the world is changed. Um, You know, those moments when you think, oh, I wanted to do that and I forgot. (laughs) This is that moment for me. Um, I was going to bring up a whiteboard. So I want you to imagine that I have a whiteboard. Just just come with me for a moment. And the whole whiteboard, as big as it is, that's all of God. Some people like to stay at the edge. Stay at the edge of the whiteboard. Stay at the edge of God. Just a little bit of God. Just enough to kind of sneak in. That's enough for me. That's all I need. Because I'm not sure that I'm going to be missing out from stuff on the other side. Things that I think I know better than God. But Jesus says, press into the center. There is more of God to discover. More of God to know. We had a series a long, long time ago that talked about this principle. About the difference between scuba divers and snorkelers. Right? Snorkeling is where you stay at the surface and a boat kind of takes you a few miles offshore and they take you to some coral and you can kind of look and, oh, look at all the water and look at the fish and that one's coming right at me. Get me out of the water, that kind of (laughs) stuff. That's really fun. And you really do get get to taste and see just the beauty that's underneath the ocean. You can have a Christianity like that where all you do is snorkel. But you know what the real wonders of the ocean are? They're not from snorkeling, they're from scuba diving. And scuba diving takes work. You've got to have special equipment, a special suit for the temperatures. You've got to have special lights. And you think the fish, you know, down at the coral can be a little scary. Whew. So it gets a lot scarier down closer. But you get to see what few in the world get to experience when you scuba dive. You get to discover things. You get to learn things that no one else Has potentially ever seen or known. And the question is. Are you a scuba diving Christian. Or a snorkeling Christian. Are you content to stay at the surface. Or do you want to go deep. When we want to go deep. We develop this desperate. Dependency. On God. That's based on Our knowledge of who he is and what he desires for us and our need to surrender that to him. So that our sanctification is something that we work on every moment of every day with fear and trembling. Great Christians don't just know a lot about God. They have a desperate dependency on God. So how do we develop this? dependency. One of the things our leadership team got to do was have some, <clears throat> just a special meeting uh, with Marilyn Westergren from our, uh, our missions emphasis week. And as we were sitting around the table, we asked her the question uh, that we talked about earlier actually uh, during our announcement time that we've, as a church, we've not really seen a large response uh, with, with the faith promise. We've not seen a lot of them come back. Uh, We've not seen a lot of people hand them in. We don't know whether they've prayed. How can we increase that engagement? And Marilyn paused for a moment. And she said, well, everything starts with prayer. Everything starts with prayer. And I think that's also true for our desperate dependency on God. If you want to go past snorkeling with Jesus and start scuba diving into the depths of who he is. I, th- I think it starts with prayer, recognizing that there is a tendency for us to explain and excuse away the planks in our own eye, the sin in our own life. Rather than deal with it. We'd rather poke at the specks in other people's eyes. as their sin is much more worse than ours. We, you know, we have reasons. We have excuses. We have, uh, you don't know my situation. God does. And he says, stop letting black mold live in your life. Let me help you deal with it. My grace is enough for you. And don't marginalize grace. Have a desperate dependency. To allow your knowledge of God and who he is and his grace and his love for you to change you. So let me ask you this morning on a scale of one to ten. Is your prayer life building a level of desperation to change and be like Jesus? If you were to give yourself a number this morning where one is, it's non-existent to ten, it's the pedals to the metal, and I am running and I am doing everything I can with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength to be like Jesus. And what if that were to go up by one? One. What would it look like? What are the things that you need to cut out of your life? What are the things that you need to change? What do you need to do? Because great Christians don't just know a lot about God. They have a desperate dependency on God. The writer of Hebrews, I think, says it well when he says, let us cast off everything that hinders. Everything. If it's a phone, if it's a social media account, if it's a relationship, if it's a website, if it's the way that we spend our time, if it's what we do at work, then start to change those things. Because imagine what would happen. Imagine what will happen when you become a great Christian. Not just because of the things you do for God, but because how much you are like Him as he transforms us to be more like Jesus. So it starts with prayer. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, we are... Well, I know I am shaken. Because there's been times in my life And there's been times in our lives when we have played fast and loose with the things that cause us to sin. It's not really that bad or I need this. You don't know my circumstances. It it won't, it'll be different the next time. But Lord, you've showed us the consequences of what that kind of thinking is. You've showed us, you've showed us how it happens. How we begin to Take your grace for granted. And may that never be. May that never be again that we just trust that, well, Jesus will forgive me if I do it. But instead of living at the edge, may we dive deep into who you are. May we be sanctified by your truth as your truth sets us free. So, Lord, I would ask for two things this morning. I would ask for your Holy Spirit to even now be speaking to each and every one of us. To help us to make that decision, to make those changes. That if there are things that are leading us to places that cause us to sin, that you would help us to take whatever steps we need to. In order to stop going there. In order to stop clicking there in order to stop participating in those conversations ending up in those moments where we're filled with regret over our sin and Lord I would also ask that even as your Holy Spirit leads us to a place of surrender that you would also lead us to a place of grace that if there's something that we are just so broken over something that has been done to us or something that we have done or we wonder if there's really grace for us Lord would you help us would you help that person to again surrender that to you confident that Jesus is enough that his death and his resurrection covered all of their sin that there is forgiveness and freedom As we confess those sins to you. No matter how often they've happened. Or how horrible they were when they happened. Even if there's consequences. And scars that we will carry. God I ask for your grace. Even as we surrender. Make us a holy people in pursuit of a desperate dependency on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.